him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday november 7th 2014 this week episode 346 comes to you from the iaq training institute iaq radio world headquarters in central city pennsylvania my name is radio joe hughes and back in studio c with us today is the z-man cliff slotnick hey joe good afternoon good day cliff and at the controls is frank Zappa Amato. Frank is our new engineer, and he's doing a great job for us. This week's guest is Dr. Alan Zelikoff. We're going to talk about Ebola. And um, hard to believe, but it was five years ago we had Dr. Zelikoff on when we were talking about the avian flu, and uh, great to have him back. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon, J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at Clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X dot com and C-M-M-Online dot com. We'd like to welcome as our newest marquee sponsors, IAQ dot net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscription information is available at IAQ dot net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, you can download the show by going to our website, iaqradio.com. You can stream right from our website, our homepage, but you can also follow the link that says Go To Show, where you can download or stream shows, and of course you can get them from iTunes. We also have continuing education credits available and just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. We'll get you out some quizzes and get you set up for the continuing ed program. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. All right, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. competing fellow IEQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, you can text in your answer. Congratulations to both Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental Inc. in Dayton, Ohio and John Lapotere, Microshield Environmental Services in Orlando, Florida for the first correct answers to last week's trivia question. Remember the IQ trivia question for Friday, November 7th, 2014 is sponsored by Trisca, the Tri-State Restores and Specialty Cleaners Association who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for well over 30 years. Trisca is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is prsca.org. Now for today's trivia question. Name the hemorrhag- hemor- I guess hemorrhagic fever first identified in 1967 during epidemics in Germany and Yugoslavia resulting from the importation of infected monkeys from Uganda. This severe and highly fatal disease caused by a virus 
from the same family as the one that causes the Ebola virus disease. These viruses are among the most you are muted. known to infect humans. Today's guest is Dr. Alan Zelikoff, MD. He is the director of the Institute for Biosecurity at St. Louis University and a professor of environmental and occupational health. He is a physician and physicist who has had a varied career, including clinical practice, teaching, and operations research. In the latter role, he was senior scientist in the Center for National Security and Arms Control at Sandia National Laboratories from 1989 to 2003. Dr. Zelikoff's interests include risk and hazard analysis in hospital systems and office-based practice and in technologies for improving the responsiveness of public health offices and countering biological weapons terrorism. Dr. Zelikoff has traveled extensively in countries of the former Soviet Union and has led joint research projects in epidemiology of infectious disease while establishing internet access at the Russian and Kazakh biological laboratories. The result of this activity is a real-time clinician-based disease surveillance and reporting system called Syndrome Reporting Information System, CIRIS, which is now being used by public health officials and responsible for monitoring the health of more than one and a quarter million people in Texas and countless agricultural animals and wildlife as well. Dr. Zelikoff is also the author of Microbe, Are We Ready for the Next Plague?, published by Amicom Books, and his latest book is More Harm Than Good, a practical look at the reasons for costly medical practice in the United States. He's the author of numerous medical and public health textbooks chapters and is a frequent contributor to op-ed pages in the Washington Post, Albuquerque Journal, and other newspapers. Alan, welcome to the show, and we have some intro music for you. Uh, I tell you where it's from. Africa. That's from where Ebola comes. West side. It hides in the suitcase. Two days later, it lands in USA. I get it from my girlfriend and give it to my dad. I catch it on the subway and leave it in the cab. I eat it at Subway, drink it at Starbucks. Ebola. What got you interested in infectious disease? Uh, specifically, when I was working uh, for uh, the U.S. government, I uh, was part of the U.S. delegation to a arms control treaty that was uh, under negotiation in Geneva. It, the treaty is called the Biological Weapons Convention. It's actually been enforced since 1975. It, it prohibits biological weapons. But the work that we were doing in um, uh, the uh, late 1990s and early 2000s was trying to find a way to come up with a monitoring regime to verify that the treaty was uh, being complied with by the uh, countries that had signed on to it. And it struck me at that time that uh, we, had a, we had a very difficult task, uh, both because the same organisms that might be used for nefarious purposes, heaven forbid a biological weapon, were naturally occurring organisms, and that we didn't have a very good way of quickly uh, identifying that outbreaks were occurring uh, until they were actually fairly well established. So that led me then to think about systems for uh, early detection of disease, which led to the software that you mentioned a, a few minutes ago called the Syndrome Reporting Information uh, System, or CIRIS. Uh, and that is, that is an effort to bring medicine and public health together. The truth of the matter is that uh, the vast majority of physicians um, don't know very much about their local public health entities, what public health uh, can do for them. And in particular, physicians aren't very good about reporting uh, infectious diseases or suspected infectious diseases because it's rather cumbersome. It takes a lot of time. And so the, the software really was designed to make it easy for physicians, nurses, EMTs, and this is sort of key, veterinarians to report unusual disease symptoms that they saw in their patients or in the case of veterinarians, animals, clients. Um, and uh, I thought that, uh, that such a system might actually be useful for uh, helping to monitor compliance with the Biological Weapons Convention because, after all, if anybody were to use an organism 
say, like Ebola, as a biological weapon, uh, it would obviously show up in both animals and humans, and you might get an idea of what the source of that was if you had rapid real-time reporting. So what really got me interested in infectious disease, which, not, which is not something that I really studied um, particularly intensively uh, as a medical student, um, I just got the standard infectious disease training, was this terrible problem of how do we prevent people from using biological weapons. So that's how I got really interested in it, and then ultimately that got me interested in public health. Joe? Hi. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Zelikoff. It's great to have you back five years since we talked last about the um, avian flu, and um, that was another viral type of issue we had. Um, are these? This is a question I get a lot. Are viruses alive? Not in the traditional sense. They're not alive in the sense that they can't make their own uh, energy source. Uh, they can't even synthesize re, uh, uh, copies of themselves because they don't have all of the machinery, the cellular machinery, to do those things. So uh, left on a table, um, the viruses just sit there unless they are able to infect a host cell. Once they're infecting a host cell, then they take on the characteristics of everything that we do associate with being alive in particular the ability to make many copies of themselves or to, to reproduce. But independent of having a host cell to invade, uh, no, they're, they're, they're not alive by that criteria. Well, you say when they're, they're sitting there, in particular with this Ebola virus, how long can it sit there and still infect someone? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, the short answer to the question is nobody knows for sure, but there is some fairly recent experimental work um, that more or less gives us the answer. So here's the general picture. If you look at um, all the viruses that we know cause human disease, and by the way, there are about a thousand now that have been identified that cause human disease, and there are probably millions of viruses out there um, that have not yet been characterized, they generally fall into two big groups uh, from the standpoint of infectivity on a surface. They're viruses that are enveloped. That means they have kind of a membrane around them that's made up of the host, partially of the host cell's membrane. They literally grab it as uh, they're, they're reproducing and butting off the surface of the cell. And then there are these non-enveloped viruses. So um, most of your listeners, I'm sure, have heard about the virus that causes these outbreaks of gastroenteritis, vomiting, diarrhea on cruise ships, the norovirus, uh, that is a non-enveloped virus. And as a general rule of thumb, the non-enveloped viruses uh, will, will survive on a surface, that, that is to say remain infectious if a host comes along for many weeks, unless they're exposed to strong acids, uh, decontaminants, uh, high levels of ultraviolet radiation. But many weeks for the, for the non-enveloped virus. For the enveloped viruses, the ones that literally have as, as their membrane part of the host cell, they're much more fragile. Um, and so, uh, for example, the uh, Ebola virus uh, ha is an enveloped virus. And on a surface, uh, in, let's say, blood on a surface, maybe a week, uh, probably a little bit less, not many, many weeks like you would see with norovirus. And that's, I think, about as precise as anybody can be. And, you know, one of the rules that I try to follow as a physician is that it's, it's much better to be approximately correct than precisely wrong. And so that, that's the approximate answer that I think we have the science to support. You know, I think what's amazing as you know, I think when we look back to AIDS and, uh, you know, what we've learned about that, um, and, you know, it's a horrible disease, and, again, it, it's something that, that's fragile and doesn't take uh, significant um, chemical technology, you know, things that are really, really strong. And, you know, you don't have to sterilize surfaces in order to, um, you know, remove it decontaminate it, denature it, or, you know, whatever process 
we're trying to uh, accomplish. It's, it's just kind of amazing that, that, you know, like with Ebola, I guess it's the same thing. You know, if you get it in your body, it, it could be horrific. But, you know, when it's on surfaces, it's pretty easy to, uh, you know, to clean up. What's a corona? What's the difference between enveloped and non-enveloped? And you, you, you've covered that, but what's a coronavirus? How does it differ? Well, the, the coronaviruses are a family, um, and uh, your your listeners are probably familiar with a couple of the diseases that the coronavirus family causes. Um, for example, SARS from back right. in 2003, and the Middle East uh, uh, respiratory syndrome, MERS. That's that's another coronavirus, um, and so those those viruses have obviously been around forever, uh, but they've only been recognized in the past few years. Now, the coronaviruses are also enveloped viruses, so they're fairly easy to decontaminate because they're fragile. By the way, you you mentioned HIV, and you are completely correct in the way you characterized it as a a, uh, fragile virus. It, too, is an enveloped virus. And so uh, these, these viruses are fairly easy to... Um, inactivate on surfaces. Now, what's interesting about the coronaviruses, also interested about the Ebola viruses, what is the natural source of these viruses? Um, in coronavirus, it, it, particularly the SARS coronavirus, it might be uh, from, from bats. Uh, that is almost certainly the case with the Ebola virus. It's yeah, I think it's a fruit bat, correct? Yeah, it's a, well, there's several species, but the, the one that everybody has their, their eye on is the fruit bat, and it has an extremely long uh, or large uh, geographic uh, distribution, and uh, so it is found throughout uh, sub-Saharan Africa, and I believe that it's even found uh, north of sub-Saharan Africa. I think it's found in, in Egypt, for example. So, yes, it's, it's fruit bat. So, interestingly, uh, bringing up coronavirus and Ebola in the same conversation is that they both appear to have bats as their as their natural reservoir, and humans are not a requirement for the continued procreation or survival of, of the virus. You know, we heard we hear this word mutation. Can you tell us w- w- what it means, and also, you know, perhaps what causes viruses to mutate? A little bit of high school biology is required here, um, and I'll try not to get too too geeky about this. Uh, all viruses, in essence, are genetic material, either DNA or RNA, surrounded by some sort of a protein coat to protect the RNA or DNA, and then they may be further surrounded by an envelope. So a mutation occurs when there is a change in the actual genetic coat. And in the viruses that... Uh, seem to cause the most problems uh, in the modern era. Influenza, uh, coronavirus, uh, Ebola is certainly one. Those are RNA viruses. That's uh, kind of biologic um, shorthand for when that genetic material reproduces, the reproduction is very error-prone. So by random chance, there, there are errors that are introduced into the genetic code in RNA viruses, of which Ebola and coronavirus happen to be uh, types. So why is this important? Well, what it means is that when the virus invades a host cell and the RNA reproduces, it reproduces thousands and thousands and thousands of times, creating thousands of virus particles in a single host cell that then butt off the cell and can then go on to infect other host cells. Every time that RNA gets reproduced, there's a chance that an error will be introduced, and that's a mutation. So that RNA, if you remember your high school biology, is also what codes for the proteins that make up the virus and also define the virus's ability to infect other cells. So, for example, the RNA defines what the host range will be of the virus, whether or not it can bind to a host cell and, let's say, a pig, like some Ebola viruses can. Um, And if a mutation takes place, then the host range may increase or the host range may decrease. 
And in addition, the rapidity with which the virus multiplies in a host cell may increase or it may decrease. So every mutation may introduce a change that actually does not favor survival of the virus. But since mutations happen rather frequently, and we can talk about the numbers with Ebola if you wish, um, there is a chance that the virus will take on some new characteristic. For example, it might be more virulent, or it might become less virulent, or its host range may extend a little bit more to an animal that wasn't previously infected with, with the virus. So the RNA viruses are sort of born to mutate. And what's interesting about Ebola is um, when, when you look at the genetic code of all of the isolates that have been obtained going all the way back uh, to 1976 for Ebola and uh, to 1967 for the virus that was in your trivia question. Right. They're closely related. The mutations don't happen very often. So the, the common ancestor of all of, of the family that Ebola uh, is in probably is more than 1,000 years old. And we know this by looking at the very slow mutations that have taken place. Um, and we can get an estimate of how frequently those mutations take place and result in a virus that is, in fact, successful. There are doubtless many more mutations that take place that result in a virus that is not successful. We can't find them because the virus isn't successful. Uh, but for the successful mutations to procreate appears to be rather rare uh, uh, in, in Ebola. Um, it's a little different in influenza because the genetic material is, is different uh, in influenza. There are many more opportunities for the genetic material to literally reassort, uh, but that doesn't happen in Ebola. It's just pure mutation, and the vast majority of the time, those mutations don't work. So when people talk about things like, could Ebola virus become transmissible through the air? That's one item that you read countless times uh, in the media. The short answer is it's not very likely because it would take many mutations to make that happen. And in the course of those mutations uh, uh, occurring, the virus would have to be successful along with every single mutation. And the overwhelming majority of the time, mutations result in a viral uh, progeny that just isn't successful. Did that, did that help at all? It did. Help. It was great. Joe? Let me... There's a text question, but before we get to that, I'd like to kind of set it up with this one. Um, can a single viral particle with this Ebola, uh, for example, cause an infection? Um, short answer again, nobody really knows what the infection dose is. The, the, in experimental animals, in non-human primates, who are the best model that we have for infection, the numbers appear to be a few tens of particles, if not one, but not not a million, um, maybe not even a thousand. So it's a handful. But it's very difficult to be more precise than that. Now that said, it also has the virus also has to enter via pathway where it can bind to a host cell. So for example, the virus on skin surface is harmless because the uh, layer, the top layer of the skin is dead cells, and so there's nothing for the virus to invade, and therefore it cannot reproduce. However, if you were to lick that area of your skin, or if you were to uh, rub that area of your skin in, say, a mucous membrane like the eye or the nose, then you could introduce the virus. How many particles do you have to have on your skin? Again, it's probably on the order of a few tens to a hundred. It, it could be less than that, but it probably isn't. It's certainly not thousands. Okay, and then the text was, how likely is Ebola to be transmitted in a similar manner as the SARS was at the Amoy Gardens in Hong Kong in 2004, which apparently was through the plumbing? Yeah. Um, so that's a great question. And what, what happened in Amory Gardens probably was the, uh, the, the pressure that was in the water system, because I, I believe it was a high-rise, if I remember correctly, had to be very high to get the water up. And so when toilets were flushed, uh, the, the pressure was enough 
to literally aerosolize fecal particles that had the SARS virus in it into the air. There may have also been some bad venting, uh, incorrect trap placements. I'm not, I'm not a plumber, so I, I can't use these words correctly. But in any case, the pressure in the water was enough such that when water, I'm sorry, toilets were flushed, aerosols, which are tiny little particles that behave like the air, that's why they're called aerosols, were thrown up into the atmosphere inside the buildings, and um, uh, people could get infected because the SARS virus did, in fact, survive long enough on those tiny little aerosol particles. So we're talking things that are maybe 5 microns across, at most 10 microns. There is no evidence that the Ebola virus can survive on an aerosol particle. Now, you may ask, well, why is that? And the answer appears to be pretty straightforward, although no one knows for sure. And that is when you get a really tiny particle, the surface area is, is huge compared to the volume. And so desiccation or evaporation takes place. And the envelope of the virus falls apart. And if the envelope of the virus falls apart, then the proteins that are on the envelope that enable the virus to invade a host cell don't work, and so the virus can't infect. So the short synopsis from our experience with Ebola virus going back to 1976 is, by now, I think we would have identified aerosol transmission of the virus if it, in fact, existed. We don't have any evidence for that at all. It is impossible to prove a negative. I can't say there's absolutely no way that could happen. But it appears very unlikely that the virus can survive on a tiny particle simply because it desiccates, it dries out. Whereas the SARS coronavirus was a little hardier and it could survive on an aerosol. Yeah, and speaking about transmission, could you speculate on the route by which the Dallas nurses became infected with Ebola? Any idea? I do have an idea. It is speculation. Um, I'm not going to be so bold as to say that it's it's definitive. Um, but in talking with my colleagues who um, are following this very, very carefully, it simply appears that there was either a breach in the protocol for taking off the personal protective equipment or, and I don't have any independent, independent verification of this, when the Liberian man who was uh, admitted to the hospital after his second uh, visit to the emergency room, before he was placed in isolation, uh, members of the healthcare team had uh, contact with him without using personal protective equipment or without using adequate personal protective equipment. So it was either a failure in using it properly or I believe it's possible just based on conversations with people who are trying to answer that question precisely that Thomas Duncan, I believe that was the name of the Liberian man, right. probably had direct contact with healthcare workers when he was very ill, meaning he had a high virus titer in his blood, high virus titer in fluids like nasal secretions, cough, and the... Uh, healthcare personnel who had very close contact with him probably did did not don their personal protective equipment at the initial uh, um, readmission when he came in the second time to the uh, to the emergency room. Can I ask a quick follow up? Um, when we talked about you know a single particle of the virus, most likely not being. Um, the, the reason why someone gets infected. Is that because you need multiple particles to get one that is um, capable of infecting, or do you need more than one particle to cause the infection, if you know what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're saying. It's a very insightful question, and it does not have a good answer. So... I think that the best we can say is that just because there are countable virus particles doesn't mean they're all viable. They're not all intact enough. 
in order to infect a cell. Um, so maybe only one out of two or one out of five or one out of ten is fully intact to infect a cell. But nobody really knows the answer to that question. Okay. Well, Cliff, I think it's a good time to break for halftime and thank our sponsors. Okay. We'll be right back with the second half of our show with Dr. Alan Zelikoff of interesting stuff here, Ebola, Issues and Answers. We'll be back in two minutes with the second half. Thanks to our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. We'd like to welcome as our newest marquee sponsors, IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscription information is available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Alan Zelikoff, he is, you know, this has been fascinating so far for me. Um, I think you answered this question, but just in case, this is something I've seen a lot of. We were talking about airborne uh, transmission of the, of the disease, and it seems to me then that would make it kind of... Um, not necessary to try and disinfect air in areas where Ebola patients have been treated. But I want to make sure there's not some other reason why we wouldn't want to do that, so I want to throw it out to you, Doc. Another way that the virus can be transmitted is via particles that are bigger than aerosols. They're called droplets, um, and um, obviously droplets do exist in the air for a period of time, but they tend to fall to the ground uh, or hit another surface and stick uh, rather quickly. Um, I'm not aware of uh, any uh, field hospital, uh, for example, in the current outbreak in Sub-Saharan Africa or previously in what was Zaire, now the Congo, in 1976, where anybody thought you are unmuted, disinfect the air, uh, using, for example, UV. Um, now, when the virus is handled in a laboratory, it's always uh, handled under biosafety levels or conditions, which means that there's negative pressure airflow, heat defiltration, and, and frequently heating up the exhaust air such that anything that uh, does make it through a HEPA filter, and not very many things do, uh, is going to be... Um, is going to be killed or otherwise uh, denatured. So it is almost certainly the case that disinfecting the air is the least of our problems. We've got plenty of other things to worry about before that. It's just not a high-priority item. Could you comment on, I, I, I think Doctors Without Borders uh, in Africa has some sort of distance that they want. I, I think it's six feet 
that they want, um, I guess, family members who are visiting someone with the infection to kind of stay six feet away. Could you comment on that a little bit? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and their, their, their reasons are based on very good science, which is that droplets, so particles that are maybe 50 to 100 microns in size, much, much bigger than aerosol particles, they fall to the ground in about a meter. That's a good rule of thumb. And so if you double that, two meters, that's six feet, the likelihood of a droplet making it from one person to another over a distance of six feet is extremely small. And in practice, that's worked out very, very well. There have, to the best of my knowledge, there have been no cases of transmission from an Ebola patient in a hospital where a family member is visiting, let's say speaking with them through a fence, but separated by six feet where a single case has been transmitted. I don't believe there's even one example of that. And that's because droplets fall to the ground in about a meter. And so you double that and you've, you've dramatically given yourself a big buffer there of safety. I think that my statistic is correct, but uh, I, I know that you're going to know if it's not. You know, supposedly no one in the United States, um, you know, living in the United States has been infected and died of Ebola. And what I'm wondering is if there are no vaccines, if there are no effective drugs, how is the medical community healing those people that are infected? What are they doing to, you know, make them well? Okay. So in the U.S., there, there have been a total of four cases. There was the initial case, Mr. Uh, Mr. Duncan from Liberia. Right. There were the two nurses. And then there was the doctor who I still believe is in isolation in New York City right. who had been taking care of patients uh, in, in West Africa. And none of those uh, – uh, of those four, uh, the only person who died was, was Mr. Duncan. Okay, right. If I remember correctly. I, I think that, that's it. All right, so you may, so you may ask what, what accounted for the, the survival of the others. And before I answer that question, I just want to point out that uh, the last time I checked, which was a couple of uh, days ago, there have been about 13,000 cases reported uh, to the World Health Organization uh, to date since the outbreak began uh, in December of last year, almost a year, and there have been 4,800 deaths. So about 8,000, not quite, 7,000 people have, have uh, no, 8,000 people have survived. Why do they survive? Because if you can give people fluid replacement because they tend to vomit and have bad diarrhea so they can literally die from complications of, of dehydration, if you, can, if you can give people intravenous fluids, you can save a lot of lives. That was, that was demonstrated uh, by Dr. Carl Johnson in the outbreak in Zaire in 1976. And there, there are um, some medications that are antibodies to the virus that appear to work, but we don't have any controlled trials in humans. There are some very good studies in non-human primates that show that the antibodies that are in the uh, commercial product called ZMAP um, are highly protective against death, even in animals who are already quite sick with Ebola virus. So a few people have gotten the very limited number of uh, doses of ZMAP, but the, the number isn't large enough in humans to say, yes, it's effective in humans. It is clearly effective in non-human primates. And while we're on the subject of vaccines, I think people should take uh, a great deal of, um, of optimism uh, in the ongoing trials that have already started with the vaccine in humans in West Africa. And this is a vaccine that's been tested extensively in non-human primates who are then infected or exposed to very large doses of the Ebola virus, and it is almost 100% protective uh, in those animals. The, the, the vaccine appears to just be almost perfect um, in non-human primates. So there's every reason to believe, in fact, I would say there's almost no reason to not believe that it will not be an effective vaccine uh, in humans. So it's already being tested. Um, the, the first 
phase of the trial is going on and, and what happens in the first phase of the trial to see after getting the, the vaccine, do humans generate antibodies that then neutralize the ability of the virus to infect cells in the laboratory? And we'll have that data by next month. Is that the tobacco one or a different one? The tobacco one is the antibodies. Uh, interestingly. Okay. So what we've done was to take the, the genes that make the antibodies, this really amazing biology, put those genes into the, the genome of the tobacco plant, and the tobacco plant grows quickly, generates lots and lots of these antibodies, which can then be rather, rather um, safely uh, isolated from all of the other proteins that are in the tobacco virus. In other words, there's no risk at all when you're growing up these human antibodies in a plant that you'll somehow introduce into the mix an infectious agent from the plant. That has never, ever been reported to occur. That's one of the reasons that um, this is being done in plants, in addition to the fact that they generate a fairly large amount of the, of the antibodies. The vaccine is actually um, uh, using an uh, animal uh, virus that uh, has in its genome one or two or three of the genes from Ebola, not the whole genome of Ebola, just one or two or three of the genes. And this virus um, reproduces only a few times in humans, but enough so that it's, and it, all, and it also reproduces only a few times in non-human primates, um, but it reproduces enough so that the primate immune system will make antibodies against the Ebola proteins that are being made by this virus. So it's just remarkable technology, appears to be 100% safe, and again, in the non-human primates, is virtually uniformly effective at preventing disease, even in animals who are then exposed to very high amounts of the Ebola virus. So I'm very optimistic about this. Joe? Yeah, I'd like to talk for a moment about the, the personal protective equipment and, and then maybe about some of the processes for you know cleaning these areas that have been um, areas where patients with Ebola have been treated or you know have been uh, waiting for treatment. First, let's start with the PPE. How difficult is it for for a provider, a medical provider, whether it be a nurse or a um, uh, an MD, or I don't know if nurses clean up the the you know all the vomit and all the other. Uh, issues that occur with with these patients, but um, how much more difficult does it make it to provide these services when you're wearing all this personal protective equipment? There's no question it, it makes it more difficult. As as to how much, you know, I think we can go back to the experience in in Zaire in 1976, uh, and this was reviewed just a couple of weeks ago, um, very beautifully in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, by the guy who was one of the co-discoverers of the Ebola virus. His name is Carl Johnson. He's one of the true giants in epidemiology and virology. He's a, he's a real virus hunter, unlike the rest of us who just read about it and write about it. So he went, he went to Zaire in 1976 where this mysterious illness was breaking out. Um, people were dying um, from uh, vomiting, diarrhea, and bleeding. Um, and he also noticed that many healthcare workers were, who were taking care of these folks were getting infected. So think about this. It's Zaire. It's 1976. That's like 40 years ago. Uh, very primitive conditions. And uh, what Dr. Johnson and his colleagues did was to uh, put people in rather simple personal protective equipment, goggles, masks, gloves, maybe two layers of gloves, and gowns. And the number of hospital infections uh, in healthcare workers dropped to zero. And it dropped to zero within a couple of weeks. So it can be done, and it, in fact, it was done, and it was done 40 years ago with rather primitive personal protective equipment and under very primitive conditions. Uh, you can go to the New England Journal of Medicine website, and there's a little slideshow showing you what those conditions were like in 1976. So can it be done? Of course it can be done. Um, do you have to take some care when removing the personal protective equipment? Of course you do, because what's the PPE designed to do? It's designed to trap the particles on the surface of the PPE, 
not get into the air supply or onto the mucous membranes of the wearer. But if you take it off in a way that you end up contaminating your skin and then you rub your finger, let's say, in your eye, then you can introduce the virus that way. Um, there's a great little video I saw a couple of weeks ago. It's on the CNA web, CNN website. Do you know who Dr. Sanjay Gupta is on CNN? Yes. yes. Right. So he's a neurosurgeon, um, no um, stranger to putting on surgical gowns and taking them off. And he uh, went through an exercise where he put on a surgical gown, that the kind of stuff that he might use when doing um, uh, neurosurgery where uh, lots of aerosols were going to be generated. So he had face masks and, of course, the standard surgical gown, and he was double-gloved. And then he put some chocolate sauce on various portions of, of his personal protective equipment, a surrogate for blood. And then he took it off, and there was chocolate on his skin, uh, particularly on his neck, if I remember correctly. Now, I think he was trying to make the point that if you take it off hurriedly, you can contaminate yourself. And if you watch the video, I think you convince, can convince yourself that he went to extremes in taking it off hurriedly. But his point was a simple one and I think a valuable one. you got to take this stuff off correctly, and that may be almost as hard as working in it in the first place. So, yes, it's cumbersome to work in personal protective equipment, but it can be done, and even more important is taking it off properly. And that's cumbersome as well. And if you think about... Sub-Saharan Africa, where there is no air conditioning and temperatures are probably in the 90s and the humidity is very high and then you put on PPE, it is extremely uncomfortable to be in, in that stuff for long periods of time. And I can see how people, when they're off shift, just want to rip it off and go have a cold beer. So you got to be a little bit careful when you do it. But I think well, it's demonstrated over and over again that it can be done. You know, it, it would seem to me that, you know, practice is, you know, you're, you're not going to be comfortable with doing this unless you practice it. And I suspect that there was never the need to practice, you know, giving, you know, inserting an IV into uh, a dehydrated patient with, uh, you know, multiple layers of gloves on and, you know, looking through you know, goggles and some sort of, you know, protective mask and so on and so forth. So I think it would be, you know, kind of frustrating. I, I, I could see how it could easily, you know, lead to someone self-infecting themselves for sure. I think that's right. Um, and, and training is, of course, paramount. But I believe that the vast majority of, of nurses are skilled enough to do this. Um, and it, it raises an interesting question that, that I think we're going to have to eventually face um, with regard to our preparedness for a truly large infectious disease outbreak in the United States, not a scattered, scattered case of uh, imported Ebola, uh, but rather uh, some pandemic virus that uh, is, is in the U.S. Um, the reason I'm mentioning this is that all hospitals have to be prepared for that. It's an unlikely event very low probability event, but it has very, very high consequences. So this is an opportunity, I think, for uh, nursing staff, for infection control staff, and also for physicians to get up to speed on how to put on personal protective equipment, how to use it, how to work in it, and how to take it off. Now, there's no question that the people who have the hardest jobs are the nurses, the respiratory therapists, because they are in contact with the patient much, much more than the doctor. Uh, that said, I think that, that nurses can uh, be trained to do this. I think they should be trained to do this. And I think it makes very little sense to identify specific hospital centers as the place we're going to send all of our Ebola patients because that really undermines our preparedness for a larger event should it ever occur. And unfortunately, there have been people who I think should be more thoughtful, who have been advocating that everybody ought to be sent to one of a small number of specialized centers for taking care of uh, patients with hemorrhagic fever. I think, I think that's both a mistake from a preparedness standpoint, and it's, it's just a little bit insulting to the quality of nurses that we have in the United States. Now, I'm wondering, is there a, a point where we're getting um, 
we're overdoing the PPE? Um, I'm not sure I'm smart enough to answer that question. Um, I, I think what you're driving at is, is there, is there a, a, a law of diminishing returns if you go from, let's say, a full face mask and goggles and gloves and gowns to uh, a pressurized uh, personal protective equipment, or what's called tappers, um, where you have a valve that um, uh, allows only filtered air in, and when you uh, breathe out, there's another valve that, that opens, up, uh, opens up so that you have less humidity, for example, inside the PPE. Uh, that, those are more comfortable to wear. They're much more expensive. And again, based on the experience that we saw in 1976, where there was nothing like this at all, you don't really need to go to that extent. So yes, there is a lot of diminishing returns. We may well be realizing that law of diminishing returns. Everybody wants to drive risks to zero. I understand that. I would want my risk to be zero if I were working with a patient with an infectious disease, um, and particularly one that has a high mortality associated with it. But you can't get to zero. You can come, you can come immeasurably close to zero with the existing PPE that we have now, and I believe that uh, Tony Fauci of the NIH has made that case both correctly and eloquently. You know, you used to introduce the term pandemic. Can you tell the listeners what the difference is between an epidemic and a pandemic? It's a bit of a term of art, but, but generally in the world of, of uh, public health and infectious disease, pandemic comes from the Greek pandemos, which means everywhere there are people. So by definition, the usual WHO definition of a pandemic is, I think it has to be on more than on two or more continents as opposed to, let's say, within a country or countries in the same region. If it's in a region, and region is a term of art, but it's not multiple continents, then by definition it's an epidemic, which comes from the word within the people. Okay. Uh, so within a, within a defined group of people as opposed to everywhere there are people. So influenza every year is a pandemic. We have a new strain of influenza because it's a highly mutable RNA virus every year. And fortunately, it doesn't change very much. So it's not like an entirely new strain is being introduced. But is there, in fact, disease everywhere with seasonal influenza around the world? Yes. We don't tend to call it a pandemic, even though it is, because we don't see uh, literally tens of millions of people dying as occurred during the pandemic of 1918. But in fact, there is a pandemic. It just happens to be a very mild one. So there's where the term of art sometimes also comes in. We don't like to call something that's a pandemic unless it's severe. Well, there are pandemics of cold viruses all the time. It's just not very severe, so we tend not to use that word. But in fact, it is a pandemic. What would the fatality rate to flu virus you know, be in the United States uh, on an annual basis? And, uh, I mean, is there a worldwide uh, number as well of fatalities? I'm not familiar with the worldwide number, although I'll bet there is one that exists. Okay. So the statement that uh, the CDC usually makes is something like 20% of the U.S. population is infected with influenza at least to the extent of having some symptoms. Now, the vast majority of them are mild, runny nose, sore throat, muscle aches, you know, the usual litany that you hear all the time. Um, about 20,000 people on average a year die in the United States. If you look at all the numbers over the past 20 years, that number varies from about 4,000 to a high of about 40,000. It was a little higher in the H1N1 2009, but not a lot higher. What was striking about that was is that it affected a, a younger age group. So most of the people who die tend to be either very young or very old, or I shouldn't say very old because I'm getting, I'm getting into my 60s now myself, but people over the age of 65 and people under the age of one or two tend to be that 4,000 to 40,000 uh, number of mortalities associated with influenza. That's the range um, in the United States every year. I'm wondering if you have any uh, 
advice or 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 some any kind of commentary for people who a lot of our listeners are disaster restoration type contractors and i know of some in fact quite a few that have been asked asked to assist with cleanup of areas where you know there may or may not have been someone affected with ebola and you know at first they seem to be kind of hesitant to even get involved um but then lately i've seen people are, are more and more you know okay let's let's go ahead and give us a you know give us a try do you have any advice for them with respect to you know what works what doesn't work what to watch out for etc well my advice again would go back to what's happening in the much more primitive conditions in uh, west africa right now there are people who go into the rooms of patients who have had Ebola, some of them have survived, some of them have died, and they go in and they they clean it up. They clean up the bed, they take out the the clothing or or laundry, they remove any of the equipment that was used, they decontaminate the walls, and to the best of my knowledge, in the past few uh, weeks since, Uh, standard PPE and training has been implemented for everybody, including folks who do the cleaning up. There hasn't been a single uh, hospital-acquired infection in one of those workers. So my advice is to to try to not be fearful. Um, I think it's probably reasonable to not try to create aerosols by using high-pressure discharge hoses, for example, rather using low pressure uh, or just water uh, in, a, in a bucket with, de- with decontaminating material rather than spraying it forcefully against the surface so as to avoid the possibility of aerosolizing things. But the risk is extremely low, even in West Africa, where the equipment and conditions are far more primitive than they are here. It seems like their biggest risk actually is when they when they take off their PPE when they're done. That is exactly right. Okay. You know, I, I think one of the interesting things, and I, I think it probably came out of CDC, you know, in terms of a protocol, but uh, I think now they have people working in teams, and you know, so I guess one person is watching over the other person, and it really seems that. You know, I know in scuba diving, you always do it with a buddy, and there's really a lot of safety involved in a buddy system where, you know, you're supposed to look out for yourself, but also uh, look out for others and have them look out for you. And I think there's some safety factor built into that. That's right. And and they also have a checklist. Uh, You know, pilots have a checklist before they take off in an airplane. They go through the same checklist point by point by point for every single flight, with every single airplane, even if, even if the checklist had been gone through an hour before. Uh, and now there's a checklist for people taking off their PPE as well. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, um, oh, there was a text. I don't know if you've, you've worked with Dr. Peters or not. Uh, CJ Peters? Yes. Uh, well, I know him. Um, okay. But I've, I've not had the privilege of, of working with him. He's another one of the giants in the world of, of uh, virology, particularly in these uh, hemorrhagic fever viruses. Got it. And and last, I don't know if you, Cliff, if you want to get one more, I, I certainly don't want to hog them all up, but I got a quick, I just wonder if you have any thoughts on two things. One, the media coverage of this Ebola issue, and secondly, the the reaction of some states to quarantine healthcare people coming back from Africa. Uh, on the latter, um, I I think that's just a very poor decision to quarantine healthcare workers coming back from Africa. Um, there's no demonstrable benefit, and there, uh, I think there is a, already a palpable sense that among the volunteers who would go over, if they have to somehow carve out an additional three weeks of their lives uh, after they return, they're just not going to go through with uh, volunteering to go in the first place. So I see no benefit from doing that. Um, I think it is a, a thoughtless, panicked uh, reaction. Um, we have seen that healthcare workers are perfectly capable of uh, checking their own um, temperature and when they become symptomatic, uh, reporting promptly uh, for hospital care. So we haven't seen, to the best of my knowledge, 
on anybody who got ill, even from that doctor uh, in New York City who probably shouldn't have gone bowling while he um, uh, may have had a, a fever. But at least once he documented his fever, he got in contact with, with, health, with healthcare officials uh, straight away. It works. Um, and the first question that you asked was, I can't remember. Thoughts on the media coverage of this issue? Yeah. Well, the media sells, sells themselves based on whether or not they can get people's attention. And so I guess my biggest critique of the media is that they've entertained um, theories from people who really ought to know better, who are self-proclaimed experts in Ebola, who will say things that garner a lot of hysterical attention, like this virus could become airborne. Could it? Sure. Could I get hit by a meteor? Yeah, I could. I'd hmm. say the chances are about the same. <laughs> it's very unlikely, um, and it does not help in a already confused situation to be postulating uh, changes in the virus that have never been observed before in any other virus, but unfortunately the media gloms onto that right away, particularly if it's somebody who's at a uh, at, a, at a university or otherwise has some notoriety. That doesn't help. In my view, it, 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 it verges on being irresponsible, and the media, unfortunately, plays into that from time to time. Can you comment on um, bringing sick people back to the United States uh, for treatment? There's been a lot of commentary uh, about that, and I would just like to hear what you have to say about that. It's a hard ethical problem. Um, I don't have an easy answer for you. Uh, we are asking individuals to go into harm's way. Uh, so much like with soldiers, we then promise to do the very best we can for them if they become ill because they are putting themselves directly into uh, a situation that's that's dangerous. So I think it's you could make the ethical argument that it's justifiable to do so, like happened in Spain, like has happened here with with workers who uh, became infected. Um, I believe there was a priest, if I remember correctly, um, a Spanish priest who uh, became ill in either Liberia or Sierra Leone and was transported back to Spain for, for his treatment. And it, it raised a lot of eyebrows because the same cannot be offered to the 13,000 people who have gotten infected with the illness so far in, in West Africa. But the distinction with the difference is we are putting, we are asking these people to go into harm's way to put their lives potentially on the line because there could always be a mishap. Um, and I think we owe them the best. Uh, no, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with you, and I don't know that they, I don't know that they, specified who they were going to be bringing back. I think it, you know, when I'd seen it on television, it was this, we're going to just grab busloads of sick people and bring them back who were not necessarily aid workers and so on and so forth. It would have, it would have seemed to me that the same effort and cost um, that would be involved in doing that, we could invest in doing it over there, not to protect so much the safety of the United States. It was just more a, um, it would make a lot more sense to try to help these countries develop the infrastructure medically that they need in order to control it. Well, I, I think that that's exactly right. And, and in, indeed, the, the Pentagon is setting up field hospitals. Now there are quite a number that, that have been established in, in just the past three weeks, and that's really where we ought to be, be putting our money. And also remember one more thing. Every time you transport somebody, you're running a risk. There's uh, always a chance that a, a mishap can occur. Even when you transport a trauma patient from one hospital to another, that's not a benign decision because bad things can happen in the ambulance that you don't have much control over, let alone transporting somebody over thousands of miles. Well, Dr. Zelikoff, this has been fascinating, and we really appreciate having you. Cliff, if you don't have anything further, I'm going to ask if, if there's any final comments or, or thoughts that the doctor would like to uh, leave our listeners with. 
No, he covered everything and uh, exceeded expectations again, as always. So um, I'm out of questions. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity, gentlemen. It's been my pleasure, and I uh, look forward to doing it again sometime. Perfect. Well, we really appreciate having you come back. Dr. Alan Zelikoff, another uh, great job, and I, I really – it was great to get some answers that were, you know, straightforward and not um, – you know, uh, not politically correct at all, and and, and I thought uh, really helped me sort out my thoughts on the issue. And uh, we appreciate having you, and hope you'll come back again sometime. Thank you, gentlemen. Bye -bye. All right. Hey, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks once again to this week's guest, Dr. Alan Zelikoff. We also want to thank uh, the Z-Man, my co-host Cliff. Great job. Thanks for bringing the doc on. No problem. Thank you. Uh, of course, Frank, at the controls, we think we figured out what happened with the music, but we're going to try it again at the end here, and we'll, we'll find out. Uh, I think when we muted ourselves to do the interview by phone, uh, we may have inadvertently caused some other issues, but that's all right. This is Radio Joe Hughes. Hey, by the way, next week we've got Ed Light, another returning guest. Ed's a certified industrial hygienist and a well-known uh, indoor air quality expert that will be coming to join us to you know it's always got some uh, very interesting um and not always oh let's say i'd say ed's not always politically correct either you know ed will ed will come in and 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 he'll make us think and i really appreciate that about ed i look forward to an interview with ed light next week this is radio joe saying thanks also of course to our group of growing group of loyal listeners we'll be back next friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 